Prometheus. It, um, I think we can do it in in, in four or five. Because I'm planning Prometheus. to do I'm planning to do two three books a week. So we started the first book. We'll we'll go up through four tomorrow. That's roughly, I would say. <laughs> so say somewhere between four and five for sure. That that's the limit I'm I'm setting. I don't want it to go on beyond that. I want to get to Boethius because I really want to get to Dante with the Seton group. It's it's just a major work. So, and when we get to Dante, it's going to be a long time. I mean that we'll we'll have to take a long time for that. Did you start? Thanks. Okay, let's 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 start. Um, let's start. It's good to see you all again. Um, I'm muting you all just to improve the sound from what I have been told but you know if at any time during our time together you've got a question unmute yourself and jump in okay please don't hesitate please don't hesitate okay let's start oh, can I have that um, sorry my mouse is My mouse is not working very well. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself to us this morning for your presence with us through, day, through this day. Forgive us our sins, please. Um, you offer your life to wash them away we return to you often daily throughout the week and on weekends to be healed again and again and again. Um, we wouldn't do that if we weren't susceptible to our sins. Forgive us, please. Strengthen us. Um, help us to find a strength in you that we don't have on our own. This morning, um, you gave us an extraordinary image of your city descending, um, this glorious image. Um, with these walls that identify with the 12 tribes, three on each side. It's a beautiful image of what we're asked to look forward to. The city has been one of the great images of our work together. Um, all the great writers treated as a paradigm, um, most of them. Um, help us not to turn loose of that. Um, in our world, we're encouraged to see things in terms of our family it's important, but there's a larger work going on with your city, the body of Christ, your body, the city, the New Jerusalem. Um, for the image you gave us this morning, and even maybe more importantly for your words to Nathaniel, um, a few days ago we had the reading in which you gave Peter the keys. You said that he, he could not have identified you as the Christ without the Holy Spirit. And this morning um, we were reminded of the moment with Nathaniel under a tree and being called and Nathaniel being shocked because you knew him and you described him as a man with no guile, with no duplicity. Um, the man who came in the wedding guest with his garment, um, he had a, the wrong garment, he wasn't there genuinely. It's as if he belonged to the old reading, the Old Testament, the, the law. 
Um, he had this garment on that was the wrong one. Nathaniel has no guile. You call us to come to you to present ourselves as we are with you. With you. Um, sorry, you guys. Um, no guile. Um, loving without pretenses, not trying to be somebody we're not. Trying to show how good we are, how righteous we are, to stand in you, one with you in your love. Strengthen all of us to do that. And help us to find a strength in the efforts to do that in the readings that we're doing. Um, because in these readings we're learning to see ourselves and the readings tonight in our modern world, very much our, our modern world, it's our world. So um, let us all be strengthened by this work we're doing together. Um, we are grateful for all that you offer us. Um, sorry, you guys. Um, for all that you offer us, um, help us to give ourselves to what you're asking. We offer these prayers in Christ our Lord. Um, amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The poem that I'm going to read tonight, it's, it's also, I also included it in the blog under the Hopkins um, poems. It's called The Soldier. I thought it was fitting because in the work that we're doing tonight, and, and I think next week when we start Billy Budd, um, we're dealing with um, men who are fighters. Men, not women. It's not because women aren't fighters. But we're dealing with something, I think in some ways, particularly masculine here. Um, we'll get one view from Hemingway. I, I wanted to just give you one from Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, whom you know was Catholic. So this is Hopkins' poem called The Soldier. Um, We have a lot of heavy stuff again. We only just began to scratch the surface last time. Um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, The Soldier. Yes. Why do we all, seen of a soldier, bless him? Bless our red coats, our tars. Both these being the greatest part but frail clay, nay, but not but foul clay. Here it is, the heart, since proud, it calls the calling manly, gives a guess that hopes that make believe the men must be no less. Remember, men are called to war. They, they go knowing that they're giving up their lives, basically that hopes that makes believe the men must be no less. It fancies, feigns, deems, dears the artist after his art. Um, that is, if you're an artist, let's take a Hollywood actor. You know, if you're, if you're an artist, if you're a poet writing about a soldier, <laughs> you know that in some ways you're a little bit embarrassed because the soldier's putting his life at risk, you're writing about him, like an actor taking on the role of a soldier. I would I would think 
being an actor would be humbling, should be humbling. I'm, it's hard for me to believe that's true for most actors and actresses, but if they were doing their job, they would know that. It fancies, feigns, deems, dear the artist after his art, and fame will find as sterling as all his smart. And scarlet wear the spirit of war there express. Mark Christ, our king, he knows war, served this soldiering through. He of all can reave a rope best. There he bides in bliss now, and seeing somewhat some man do all that man can do. Christ is with soldiers at war. He knows what they're doing. For love he leans forth, needs his neck, must fall on, kiss, and cry, O Christ done deed, so God made flesh does too. That's what Christ came to do. Where I come o'er again, cries Christ, it should be this. That is to be a soldier, fighting the way soldiers do. Okay, let's... Um, <laughs> Don, I hope... Um, I mean, it looks like you're struggling. I hope you're getting through. Um, um, I hope you're here. It's good to have you if, if you're getting past technical problems here. Let's start. Um, we've got a good bit to do. I just want to recall one thing from Dostoevsky, um, because to me it's a really important thing. Um, we've left him behind now for a couple of weeks, but, um, but uh, it's, to me it's worth repeating. One of the things that we discover when we're reading Dostoevsky is the absence of a philosophic tradition in the East. Um, if you look for a philosophic tradition in the East in, in Dostoevsky, it'll be platonic. It'll be otherworldly. Um, 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 it, it will look past this world. Um, remember, most of the heresies in the early church came from the East, because the East tends to be otherworldly. It tends to be somewhat platonic. It skips the world. Aristotle doesn't. You know that. Aristotle is uh, more grounded in the human body. Plato saw of the body as a prison house, something bad. This, it's just a peerage. The, the platonic, the pr Protestant world has that platonic spirit running through it. Calvin in spades. But these didn't have a sense of that philosophic tradition grounded in the body, in, in reason and in virtue. And we saw that play out over, you know, over the course of the novel. Um, we've already gone over this. I don't want to take any time, but I'll just, just take a minute to reinforce it. You know, I asked the question, where's, why is there no Portia? Why, why do we not see a virtue, particularly in women or even in the men, in the way that they deal with things. It's not there. It's not there. And if you remember Portia, the whole um, the, the, the spirit that drove her in, to, in everything she did was a sense of virtue and justice. Remember we said that everything she did in the courtroom was to fulfill the law in mercy. And in some ways she's an image of what Christ was doing when he came here. Um, virtue is a mean. Remember that. I mean, that's from Aristotle. Every one of us has different inclinations. Every one of us has different passions, different problems. Um, Don, it looks to me, somebody explain that. I think you, you made your picture 
I somehow I sent this happened a couple of days ago and it took everybody else's picture away. Um, and I don't know how to, does can anybody help out here? Um, there, there. Um, so virtue is a mean. Remember that it, it's 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 our efforts to answer the extremes that each one of us given it to. We can be Scrooges. We can be too lustful, too greedy. Um, what too fearful? I mean, whatever, whatever imbalance we have, we struggle to answer it by doing those things that are hard for us until we can do them easily. Aristotle, I can't remember his it, it, his wonderful line was, "When we take a pleasure in doing those things that are hard for us, we become virtuous." And I say that to our grandchildren sometimes. When you get to a point when you take out the garbage cheerfully. <laughs> You'll be virtuous. It's when we learn to do the things that are hard for us with good hearts that we learn to love virtue. And and I think we come close to the you know what happened in the readings a couple of weeks ago when God's when the refrain in the in the Old Testament was, "I love your commandments, God. I love your commandments." When we can love doing His commandments, we know we're okay. So virtue is a mean. We I don't we have no evidence anywhere. Um, everybody gets it wrong at the end, the lawyers, the people, the judge, nobody sees what's really there. Nobody can bring a virtue. The other thing that I just want to remind you, in, Vert, in um, Aristotle's ethic, the Nicomachean ethics, where he makes clear what virtue is, he describes justice as a mean as well. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. Remember the image we have in America was, was, goes right back to Aristotle of a woman with blindfolds holding a scale. Because justice means finding that meat, that proportion. Somebody somebody takes $200, you've got to find some way of, you know, answering that. If the person you stole from is the head of a corporation, then your fault is going to be greater because the effect of that sin will be greater than it is if you, say, take some money from a private individual. Same thing with something like murder or, you know, you have to find a way of answering something, the proportion, the balance. That's why she's holding a scale. So one of the things, I, I think Dosti is extraordinary. I, I think he's prophetic. I, I don't want to take away from our reading, but I don't want to, but I, would, I hope everybody will be aware that one of the things that we see going on in the East that we don't see going on in the West is um, what happens when your culture has a strong philosophic tradition behind it. I think we're losing it in the West, and Dostoevsky is prophetic about that. He, he's giving us the causes. Um, so we've looked at Dostoevsky as prophetic in some ways. I'm, I'm going to ask the question if Hemingway isn't something a little bit prophetic some ways himself in what he's showing us. I'm, I want to leave that as an open question. Um, two things, a couple of things to just review what we did last week. Last week I had read that um, handout I gave you on the determinisms in the sciences. Every one of the specializations in the sciences were based on determinisms. That things couldn't be other than they were. Now that's absolutely crucial to get. Absolutely crucial. And let me try to put this in a larger perspective, just for a second. You remember when we read the Iliad, 
and we talked about the the um, Homer or the Greek cosmos. That in the Greek and Roman cosmos, the gods were identified with the planets because the planets were looked at as eternal. They were unchanging. The earth was a place of change. It was a place of death. People could die there. The gods couldn't. They were identified with the planets. Okay. When Copernicus makes his discovery, and he makes it clear that the earth is not the center of the universe, but the sun is, and the earth revolves around it, that threw off the entire Ptolemaic cosmos. Because at that point, the earth takes its place among the planets and is eternally revolving. So the assumption then was that um, through the sciences, we could learn something that was permanent, unchanging about man. So the determinisms came into place then. I hope that's clear. If you look at the sheet I gave you today on the Chaucerian, the medieval cosmology, you'll see that according to the cosmology, they, people then believed that man was composed of these four basic elements, earth, fire, air, and water. And it was the mixture, the intermixture of those four elements, air, fire, earth, and water, that formed the temperament of a person. And a well-balanced person had those fluids, those forces, in, in balance. When any one of them became dominant, let, let's say, I think it's cholera, then a person would be given to anger. If it's sanguine, he would be given to melancholy or, you know, a meditative sort of person. And it was on the basis of those four elements that people had the temperaments they did. So the medieval world had a very clear sense of determinisms, that there were certain fixed things, that we were made up of these elements. Every, everyone has them. Okay? The difference between the medieval world and the modern is, in the medieval world, even though people believed that there were these four elements, air, fire, earth, and water, they believed that man had a free will. When you get to the modern world and God's no longer around, People believe in these determinisms, but man has no free will. And the Protestant world starts with that same belief, that in the fall, man lost his free will. So remember when I gave you that sheet, you might, you might look over it again some tonight or you know, whenever you're at your leisure, but remember, every one of the sciences, physics, biology, psychology, anthropology, you name it, Every one of those fields was based on a scientific assumption that there were some things that couldn't be other than they were. The whole aim of science is to find laws, those things that are necessary, that can't be other than they are. And every one of them den denied man's free will. Um, Darwin and Freud were major, as you all know. So the, backs the backdrop, the background, the backstory of um, actually Dostoevsky, because it's beginning then, and even um, in, in more relevant ways, given what we're doing tonight, it's true for Hemingway. That was the backstory. Okay. Now, one, one last sort of general comment before we, we look at the book. Remember Plato's cave. It's, it's an image you guys have had. Um, we've, we've looked at it several times. You already know it. I mean, more than several times. Remember, Plato's showing us that most people live in a cave. We, in fact, we all live in a cave. We take images, appearances for the real thing when they're not, that there's something else behind them. 
what, Kate, what Plato's showing us is that every man in every age is a product of his age. And I want to underscore that tonight because in everything that happens with Santiago and his struggle with that Marlin, we're looking at a man who's a product of his age. And one of the questions that I'm going to ask you when we get to the end of it tonight is, does Hemingway, in the image that he gives us, the action that he gives us of Santiago, does he transcend that age or is Santiago still stuck in it? Is that clear? Plato's giving us the cave image, remember, we're all there. It isn't, until, according to Plato, it isn't until we begin to question things that we learn to get free of those things. We've, we've grown up in a certain age. The, the age is scientific and it's bourgeois. We think, most people think, take on their activities believing that if they get a job and get money, enough to buy a house and they can take care of themselves, that they will, they will attain happiness. They have comfort, security, wealth. Those are, those are the gods of the modern world. If I just have enough money and I do my job well, I'll be wealthy, um, I can have a family, we'll all be settled. Um, so, when death comes along and we're not prepared for it, it's, you know, it hits hard. But the attitude, I think it's safe to say that an attitude of a lot of people in the modern world is, once they've worked for a long time, or, or let me wait, let me wait before I get there. So when you approach work and you give everything self to it, particularly in America, because I think this is me, if you guys want to take up a difference with me, go ahead. But in America, we're alcoholic, workaholic. We drive ourselves. So when we reach a point where we're exhausted, we want to take a break. And our attitude is, I've done enough, time to get away, time to go to the lake, a boat, take a break, whatever, go on a vacation. And you know that, and I hear this so often from people, they'll, they'll say, I've paid my dues, I've paid my dues, I've done my suffering, now it's in time for me to enjoy life. It dominates movies. I mean, you can find that everywhere in movies. So we've got on the one hand what I would call a bourgeois ideal that material comfort will make us happy. And we feel that life is owed something, we put in our time, we get angry when we don't get back what we think we deserve. In fact, you're watching what happens when people think they're not getting what they deserve. They can get violent. That's an ideal driving America. So on the one hand, it's, it's um, sort of utopian and bourgeois, and the other, it's Protestant. It says that all human beings are depraved, they're bad, and without Christ's grace, they can't do anything but evil. So those are two of the defining qualities of the American character. And we've got a story now about Santiago going out on a boat to try to catch this fish and bring back this, what will earn his keep and maybe even more. If he happens to um, catch a larger fish, it, it will it will answer his pride to do something great. I mean, that's what the story's about. So, we looked at the three stories of Hemingway last week, um, Hills Like White Elephants, uh, Macomber, and Clean Well-Lighted Place, and we saw that there's this bleak sense of nothingness to the world. The old man in, in Clean Well-Lighted Place had tried to commit suicide. He goes off at the end lonely. The older 
waiter goes off lonely, people are alone. The closest analogy to heaven, you know, the clean, well-lighted place, the closest analogy to heaven is a, is a, a bodego, a cafe. It was like white elephants, um, a young couple, um, are at cross purposes. Um, they're talking past each other. They've lived their life for two of the American ideals, pleasure and, pleasure and newness, novelty. They want to travel, they want to go places, they want to see things, the sense of newness. And we know that it's bleak. And in Macomber, we saw a couple go on a safari and the woman kill her husband. What we, what we saw in that, in, that, in that story was the way in which um, the hunt, the, the African safari, was really an image of um, um, a basic instinct between man and woman, to be rivals with each other, to outdo each other, um, to the point of actually one of them killing the other. So it's a dark, dark view. And now we're reading um, Old Man of the Sea, and it was the work that Hemingway wrote towards the end of his life. And you know it's the work that led Faulkner to say that he thought Hemingway had finally discovered God. So that's the work we're looking at today. That's just um, background stuff. Um, um, what I want to do is just mention the themes and then look at the, at the, some of the things tonight. And, um, and then I'm going to do something. <laughs> then I'm going to do something I don't ordinarily do to try to, to try to get at what's going on here. But before I do, any questions about just those general, that's just a, those are general, you know, overview things. Um, it's trying to set a context for looking at Old Man on the Sea. Any questions? I think it's so crucial to see, you know, one of the questions I want to ask is, does, does Santiago escape this world? Does he deal with it? That I think one of the defining characteristics of our world, because it's so materialistic, is um, wealth, happiness, material pleasures, material security, comfort. And this, this spirit that it encourages, that we feel like we should get what we deserve. You know, I put in my time, I paid my dues, I did this, I should get this. And if we don't get it, we get really angry. Or, or we get disillusioned. And um, Hemingway's telling a story about a guy in, in sort of in that context. And, and so it's important to look at what he comes out of this ordeal with. Has he changed or not? Um, but I think it's important to see the, the world view. Um, um, but any questions about this, these general things before I look at the specific themes? I do. Um, the Who's that? Is that Jolie? Who's that? Jolie. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. It's good to see you again. It's good to see you. Thanks. Thanks. I, was, I was asking about um, what you said about virtue and where where did that come in um, the, to the, was that a part of determinism or was that a part of a different age or different? Uh, yeah, no, I'm so glad you asked that. I, no, the whole point of it is that it's absent in Russia. It's not there. We don't we don't see anybody aware of that. Nobody's struggling. It's it's a very passionate world, and um, since the scientific revolution and and the modes of thought that it um, it, in, it 
it produced in people's minds, it cultivated those ways of thinking. The notion that we have a nature, that human beings have a nature, and that we can learn um, from reflecting on ourselves, something about our nature, and we can do something about it, is missing from the modern world. The modern world is, is what the church would call nominalist. Only, only particular things exist. There are no universals. There's no universals. So there's no trinity. There's no infinite God. It's just particular things. And so there's nothing like justice or virtue. Those are conventions. They're made up things. So the social contract theory, you know, I, I won't hurt you. All men exist in a state of war. By the way, that's at the heart of it. That's absolutely at the heart of what's going on in Old Man of the Sea. Everybody's in a state of war. All the animals are going to kill each other. They all prey on each other. We, that, you can't come out of that story and not see that. They're all eating on each other. That's a modern notion that everything exists in a state of war. Justice is a convention. It's not a real thing. It's an artificial. It's a construct. We create this thing in order to get along. So it's an arbitrary, uh, made-up thing. So the idea that we have a nature, that we can learn, or we can become virtuous, that's all gone. That belongs to the ancient world, to medieval Christendom. I mean, that was the Catholic world up until the Reformation and the Copernican Revolution. That, we, that virtue is something we could achieve. The Catholic Church still holds on to that, but it's, it's, the, only, it's the only institution on earth that does. So there's this philosophic tradition behind us. Um, I think we're losing it in the West pretty clearly. And um, we don't have any sense of its presence at all in Russia, in Dostoevsky's world. It's, um, Alyosha is the best man in that book. Dmitri's a really good man. Um, Ivan is wounded. Um, Alyosha's good by virtue of something spiritual in him. You know, that he's from his mother and from Zosima, but um, that notion that we have a nature and that we can strive for something, that's, you're not finding it in Dostoevsky, you're not going to find it in Hemingway either. Um, okay, um, let's, there's a number of things that I just want to, touch on lightly because I want to get to what to me are the deeper questions. The theme of tutoring we touched on last week. The, remember I said that, the, that some critics divide the work down structurally into five days. Um, I didn't want to do that. Um, it seems to me, I, you've got that, I hope you've all got that, that outline that I gave you, that you can divide it down into sections, the preparation, the going out to sea, the catching the marlin, the shark attacked, and the homecoming. And it's interesting to watch Santiago, or the, yeah, um, it's, it's interesting to watch how the, the, the tension of the story increases as he moves through the story. So that when he catches the marlin, it's just a physical battle. Um, and as it progresses, we've got him contemplating on matters, the relationship between him and the fish, he loves the fish. He says, I love him. That we're in, they're almost wedded. I want to come back to that in a second. They're together. Um, he even imagines the fish trying to be conscious of him. And at one point, when he, when he brings the skiff in, and he, the sharks have already attacked, he, he, has, he, has asked, he asks this question, who's leading who? 
am I bringing him in or is he bringing, you know, who's the winner of this? But he tends to see things in terms of beating. That's absolutely Darwinian. Who's going to come out ahead in this contest? That's fundamental to everything Hemingway does. His just think about it, his love of boxing, fishing, arm wrestling, um, bullfighting. Um, every one of those major sports was a sport involved in which a man pitted himself against another, either a human being or an animal, to test his strength. Now that, that's absolutely the core of Hemingway's ideal of manliness, that a man has to prove himself by overcoming these physical ordeals. We've got to talk about that later. What does it mean for a man to live that way? I'm asking that, I'm not, I don't want an answer, but it, we're going there. What does it mean for a man to live in the world that way? That he constantly has to prove himself. What would it mean for a man in a marriage? Or even a woman? If a woman lived in a marriage, constantly having to feel that she had to be better than her husband or prove herself, or I mean, think about Mrs. McComber and you know that story. Anyway, there are these four days, and through the four days, we see um, Santiago dealing with deeper and deeper questions. So in the middle section, he's dealing with all these relationships between creatures in the world. I'm going to quote some passages in a minute. It's interesting that in the next to the last day, when the shark attacks begin, and he's faced with the threat of losing this great catch, he starts contemplating sin and asking whether he's committed a sin, whether he didn't sin against the fish. He even reaches a point, he says, I don't, he thinks he doesn't believe in sin. Very big question for, our, for this book. He says he doesn't really think he believes in sin. And as he meditates on it, he finally, when he's asking himself the question because he's lost everything, what did I do wrong? He says, nothing. That's a quote, nothing. I went too far. So it's not a matter of sin for him, it's a question of limits. And you know that when he set out, and or midway through his quest, he repeatedly expresses his awareness of the fact that he's gone beyond other people. He's gone where other people don't go. Um, so in one sense it's a little bit like Moby Dick, but the, the question I have is, 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 is there a metaphysical dimension to what Hemingway's doing or not? What, what does he mean when Sagio says, you know, I've gone beyond where other people gone, I've gone too far. What, what is exactly that going to mean? I don't, I'm, I'm just raising questions of, for you guys to be thinking about. Um, so the question of, um, um, so the, the structure of it. And then at the end, um, after the sharks have eaten the fish, he comes in having um, feeling as if he's failed that he's been beaten. And you know through the whole story he keeps saying, do not let this guy beat me, do not, I will not, I will hold, I will do this, you will not defeat me. And even has a line in there where he says, man was not meant to be defeated. I'll read some of these passages. But he comes home with a sense of defeat. And um, he goes to bed that night and the next day when the boy comes, he says to the boy, they beat me. And the boy says, they didn't beat you. Or no, he didn't beat you. The fish didn't beat him. It was the sharks. Um, so that's the the, the structural breakdown of the of the uh, plot. A number of the important things we've touched on: tutoring. Remember that it begins with the sense that he's tutoring the boy. 
at the very end, when Santiago comes back and the boy comes to him in the morning, he wants to do everything he can to heal him. He, he goes to the drugstore, he goes to get coffee, he's doing what he's always done. And um, he, in some sense, he's true to Santiago because he says, he, he knows that this is what Santiago lives for. So he, he, he's doing everything he can not to let Santiago feel defeated. He says, we're going to go out again. And he's already thinking about making preparations to go out. Those are the boys' lines. So they're not going to be defeated. They're not going to be um, outdone. Um, so this sense of tutoring that, remember we talked about some of the things that Santiago did with the boy, finds its completion at the end. Santiago's come back. Um, he's shown his bravery. He's got this huge skeleton. Everybody's in amazement with what he's done. He doesn't have the fish to show from it, but everybody knows what he did. And the boy um, is ready to go out again. So we have to ask, um, Emmyway's concern with this question, this is not just about fishing, and I hope everybody sees this, this is not just about being fishing, this is about being a man. This is about being a man, and indirectly, I'm going to make this argument, I think everybody will see it, If you, it's also about being an artist. It's very much about being an artist. If you take your work seriously, can you do it without risking yourself and going beyond boundaries? Because we know that most of the other people in the village stay within conventions. That's what they do. They get along. They get their money. They're comfortable. They don't risk limits. But Santiago did. He went out. He's got nothing to show for it in terms of money. This is absolutely crucial. Um, even if he went out with some sense... The question we have to ask is, did he learn something so that when he comes back, he realizes something he didn't understand when he went out? And if that's so, the tutoring for the boy is not just about fishing. It's about how to be a man, how to grow up in this, in this inhuman world in which you're going to try to do something and you're going to be attacked by sharks. And I hope everybody's hearing the allegory or the metaphorical aspect of that. Because we all know, we've all experienced in business, that <laughs> there are some aspect of businesses in which people will just tear other people apart. They, they just, that's why, that's why that phrase is so important, I've got your back. That people know that they're going to be betrayed, that people are going to turn on them, they're going to use them, that violent things are going to happen. So it's not just about fishing. It, it's about something deeper that Santiago is trying to bring the boy into. And the book ends with the boy ready to go out. So there's this whole aspect of tutoring, of an initiation into something. Okay. So the theme of art, there's a way to do things. The artist has to do them. To be a good artist means you just go, go along with conventions and copy people. It's like risking the cave, getting out. Um, to, to have the courage to go beyond what other people are doing because if they don't we lose something human that too often we settle into our ways of life and and I'm saying that now particularly for Christianity that it gets easy to settle into a life and not risk ourselves with Christ um, you know are we becoming what he asks us to be or are we settling into a life that's easier we get paid it's less risk it doesn't involve risks 
It doesn't involve suffering. We get along. Um, we get comfortable. It's everything Santiago is struggling against, you know, in the book. The sexes. Um, the the so much of the action is termed in, or described in sexual terms, not very explicitly, but. You know, I, de I described the two dolphins. Remember in the first part of the story where Santiago recalled the two dolphins, the male and the female, and um, the male allowed the female to eat first, but when she got hooked, the male never abandoned her. The male stayed with her. You all remember that? And, and the male made a point of staying with her even when she got hooked. And at the very end, when... Santiago and the boy, this, remember this is a memory, when they pulled the, the, um, the fish in, the other one um, jumped up. And it's like a freezing moment. It's like a valedictory moment where the fish acknowledges that his partner has gone. Um, and very often the, the terms um, with which Hemingway describes the sea are male and female. Um, he even actually describes his relationship to the Marlin in terms of a partnership, that they are wedded, they are together. He loves, he says, you are my brother, and he thinks the Marlin looks at him as a brother. There's an intimate connection between the two of them. He talks about the sea in terms of, um, um, that are feminine, that it's beautiful and enticing, but it can also be treacherous. Beneath the surface of this beauty are treacheries. Um, the great. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna skip one and then we'll come back to it because for me it's the central one, the um, the theme of um, Christ at work in the world, put it that way. Um, you know that towards the end when the sharks are coming, Santiago lets out this I. That's, that's his word. Um, God bless. Sorry, hold on. Give me a minute. It's a screech. It's a, it's a yell. Um, um, let me see. Yeah, on my, on, I don't know what translation you got, but on, it's 107 in my book. It's close to the end. It's about 20 pages from the end. Um, he, he's defending what he did with the fish. In, in, he's a conflicted man. He really has a divided soul. He's proud of what he does, what he's done. He sees the fish as his brother, and there, there are times when he prides himself in what he's done and times when he questions whether what he did was right. He does that a number of times. At the top of 106 he says, and I killed him well. Then the first sharks come. And right at that moment, if you can find it in your book, it's exactly when he sees the first shark. It says, he had sailed for two hours, resting in the stern. So he thought the quest is over, right? He's got this gigantic marlin. He's accomplished this great thing. So he's done what, here's what's, we've got to see this in terms of just not fishing. He's done what every man would want to do to show how great he is. Um, he's caught this great marlin and he's going home. He set sail, he's on his way. He'd sail for two hours resting in the stern and sometimes chewing a bit of the meat from the marlin, trying to rest and to be strong. 
when he saw the first of the two sharks. I, he cried aloud. There's no translation for this word, and perhaps it's just a noise such as a man might make, involuntarily feeling the nail go through his hands and into the wood. That's the first explicit allusion to Christ, but it's a clear allusion. And you know that at the end, after he brings his skiff up on shore and and ties it down, he takes his mast and starts to set off to his home and falls. So he's got this mast, it's a cross image, he collapses. And then it describes him, I'll read it again. Uh, so he falls down with the mast on his shoulder. It's exactly like the Stations of the Cross. He started to climb again, and at the top he fell and lay for some time with the mast across his shoulder. He tried to get up, but it was too difficult, and he sat there with his mast on his shoulder and looked at the road. A cat passed on the far side, going about its business, and the old man watched it. Then he just watched the road. Finally, he put the mast down and stood up. He picked the mast up and put it on his shoulder and started up the road. He had to sit down five times before he reached his shack. So he collapses again and again with this crossbeam, you know, on his back. When he gets to the when he gets to his shack, he's exhausted, you can imagine. And it describes him, this is the very end, inside the shack he he leaned the mast against the wall. Um, sorry, hold on you guys. He leaned the mast against the wall. In the dark he found a water bottle and took a drink. Then he lay down on the bed. He pulled the blanket over his shoulders and then over his back and legs. And he slept face down on the newspaper with his arms out straight and the palms of his hands up. So he stretched out on his face but his palms up in a crucifixion-like um, posture. Okay. And you know that several times towards the end of his ordeal, he questions himself whether he's dead or alive. He is so exhausted, um, he has to keep um, speaking to himself sharply to make sure he keeps his head, because there are times when he wonders if he's really alive. So there's a number of allusions to Christ. I mean, Hemingway would have known it. You know that he, he, he um, had a conversion in the middle of life, and but there's there's no sense that... Um, he ever, I mean, he, he certainly wasn't a practicing Catholic, um, and you know that he had four divorces and no annulments and all the affairs. And um, Those are the some of the major themes. The one that I want to focus, well, let me, let me stop for a minute. I, I want to come to what to me is the, the heart of this whole story. Um, um, but let me stop here to, in case anybody has any questions or comments about just the few themes that I've touched on. The one that I'm going to go to, to me, is the most troubling. And it, it, to me, it goes to the, the heart of the story, and it, and it raises, I think, difficult questions about Hemingway. But before we get there, any, any comments or thoughts on just the few themes that we've talked about? Well, I got a couple of questions. <clears throat> what, well, I guess, one, the relationship of this reference to DiMaggio and and liking the, I guess, what's trans, trans transpiring with regard to his 
I guess, endurance with regard to the relevance of a this DiMaggio comparison. I mean, what does that have any significance? With, yeah, you know, DiMaggio had a bone spur, Bob, and DiMaggio was looked at as one of the greatest baseball players at the time. Yeah. But everybody admired him because he had this bone spur and came back from it and played through his pain. It led it led um, Santiago to say it's one of the it's one of the passages that I want to get to here in the next. But it led um, Santiago to say that um, DiMaggio was one of his great heroes, and one of the reasons he thought he actually says this that he thought animals were superior to humans is that animals. Um, continue to fight through their pain. And he, and he used the image of the cock in a cockfight. Even when he's defeated, keeps fighting. You know, or, or even the, even the marlin. You know, um, so one of his images of, the, of what he admires in animals is that they continue to fight long after they're defeated. And, and DiMaggio was an image of that because he had that awful crippling bone spur, but he played through it and still did remarkable things. Well, the other the other thing that, that that sort of I mean the conflicting element of the story to me in any of that was okay he had he had all these I guess after he had the fish attached to the boat and the light and and having expressing all of these thoughts and they let's say if this would the story have been as as complete let's say if he had a a, a a marlin that was that he could have landed in the boat and basically brought back and would have had that success. Uh, whereas his, if if knowing that this marlin was so big that he couldn't put it in the boat, why you would say, well, I, I can't bring this in without because I know what's going to happen. Yeah. And why don't I just release him? I mean, uh, under those, you know, that that kind of. Uh, was everything that he expressed after that was like he was sorrowful that he had done this. I mean that he had kept this fish uh, because yeah. it, it, you know, he didn't end up with it I yeah. mean, uh, in the end. And as um, uh, I, I say, I, I, what the significance really of of a lot of the story, if if it if it had been, let's say, something where he had you know had a smaller a smaller fish and and the like, I guess there wouldn't be any story. I mean, uh, uh, to uh, to that yep. part of it, like yep. it'd be, it'd be, it seemed like a terribly conflicted man here, with uh, his uh, his commentary through the through the passage of trying to get not only land the fish but also to to getting it home. Right. I mean, the, yeah, the, uh, those are the two two biggest elements of the of the whole story. I mean, to to me, at any rate, yeah. the purpose. The purpose of the story is always be prepared because you took off with nothing. And Bob, you know that you not prepare for the future. So I can't relate to this fellow because I've gone out there with nothing like he did. <laughs> yeah. From a prepper from a prepper <laughs> Here, let me let, let me just briefly let me just briefly comment on that, Marcy, and then I both of you are touching it to me in the heart of the story. And I, and I actually want to hold off a little bit, if you, if, Bob, if you won't mind, um, because it seems to me you're touching on the... 
But I think what it, I mean, Marcy, to go back to what I said before, and I and I don't want to I don't want to answer it. I, what I want to do is keep it alive as a question right now. You know, we all know that 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 Santiago's response to what happened was to say, "I went out too far." He carries that with him. Um, that if and he he doesn't treat it as a sin, but it get it takes on something of that meaning when he looks at it, but he doesn't call it that. But he says again and again, the only thing he did wrong was go out too far. And a couple of times during the story, Marcy, you're right. He makes a point of say he he wasn't prepared adequately. And it's really interest it's really interesting. God, I don't want to get ahead. I don't want to get ahead. I'm fighting this off right now. It's real well it is. It's really interesting. He says he made a mistake because he didn't make the preparations he should have. He should have done some other things. When he talks to the boy at the end, he says, We're gonna take the shark, the blade we're going to get this, we're going to do this, we're going to have all these things, but it raises the question, would the story have its meaning if he stayed within the limits of what was safe? Because if he had, he would have been back into that world, we would not have this story, and as a matter of fact, I'm going to go farther, and it's really a troubling thing for me to, because he took his life at the end of his life. Would, Would he, would he, Hemingway, would he have gotten a Nobel Prize if he had just written the kinds of stories everybody else had written? There, Hemingway did something for the American culture. It made him the premier writer, um, at some point even greater than Faulkner, although my own belief about it is that Faulkner is a far greater writer than Hemingway. But at some point, he he was one of the spokesmen for America. He was showing America something about himself that nobody, not Scott Fitzgerald, not all these other writers. And here we've got this story of a man who's going beyond limits, who who is brought to a point of regret. And I think you're absolutely right, Bob. If he, you know, if he, I mean, if he caught a smaller fish, or, but that's not the point. The point is he did go out. He did catch a fig. My and I don't want to answer it. My question is, what do we? How do we look at him at the end? Let's wait on this, please, because it's to me. It's the it's the major uh, question I, of the story. I'd like to say one more thing. Uh, I always look up the authors and I read their lives usually before I read what they write. And yes, he killed himself, but he had an inherited disease. He had too much iron in his blood. And all of his family, they also killed themselves. This is hereditary, and all of them had that. Another person we know has that. That's Father Martinez that was here and went to Wichita Falls. He has that same disease of too much iron, and he has to go to a certain doctor ever so often to have his blood taken out so that he doesn't end up it killing him. Yeah. He has the same thing that this author has. Okay, I'm through. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> Here, let me go to this. Let me go to the, the... So, we've got these major themes, okay? The tutoring, art, limits, Christ... Um, the one about limits is very important. Everything that Bob and Marcy just said goes to it. And, um, it's a major part of Santiago's action when he reflects back on the moment. It's very clear at the outset that he says he's going beyond where other people go. By the way, one of the great themes of Robert Frost's poetry, 
the road not taken, doing what other people don't do. Frost went to New England. He left San Francisco. He wanted to be a poet. Um, so many of his poems have to do with that road not taken, that thing beyond conventions. Because it, it, there's, some, there's a serious question in here, and let me try to relate it to Christ to keep it alive. There's a real question whether we can ever really become who we are if we don't take that step. Um, it's implicit in Christianity. Christian, Christ is saying, unless you die, pick up your cross, unless you go to a cross. Remember when we started, to try to put this in perspective, the very first book we read was the Iliad. It's about men in this honor code killing each other, and one of them stepping outside of that code and coming to a point where two things happen with him that don't happen with any of the other men in the book. One is he admits his fault. He says, I let everybody down. And, um, and the other is he accepts his death. He goes back into the war. And, and my own understanding of that, as you know, is that's what I think every man faces if he ever reaches a point where he admits his sins and has less to be frightened of. Because so long as a man tries to be something he isn't, and he tries to be unafraid of things, the serious question is, what is he afraid of that he doesn't know? So the very first work that we read at the beginning of the civilization has to do with this going beyond boundaries. Remember, I've defined the tragic hero as that person who steps outside of the conventional world. He enters a world of darkness. He's isolated. He's by himself. But it's only in that world that he learns to see things about himself that other people don't see. That's been a principal motif of our literature from the very beginning. And we've got it here at the end. And remember what I said before we look at this. Remember, determinisms have always been with us. We have a nature. One of the differences between the modern world and the ancient world, say the, you know, the ancient or medieval, is that determinism has always been there. But the Christian ancient world both believed in man's free will. That he could struggle, he could come out of the cave, he could do something. Christ says that. We are not determined by our world. There are determinations we have to struggle with. But we have free will. What makes the modern world different is that it makes those determinisms complete. It denies man's free will. The Protestant fundamentalist world does, the scientific world does. So we have a we have a shrunken image of man in the modern world. We've been talking about that since Dante. Remember Flannery O'Connor in that story, Heart of the Park, when she takes Enoch, or Enoch goes into the museum to see what this big mystery is about this creature in a member in this case, and it's a shrunken figure. It's an image of modern man. Um, we've lost a sense of the glory of the human person. That's been a major theme of what we've been doing since we began. Okay, the major theme, the major concern for me that I, I just want to, um, if I can quickly go through some of this. The view informing everything that happens with Santiago, the way that he looks at himself, the way that he looks at the world, is Darwinian. Um, man's a product of forces over which he has no control. He's, he's on a line of evolution that places him there with the animals. Now that could not be more radically different from the Christian world. I've, I've encouraged you all to read G.K. Chesterton's Everlasting Man because to me it's one of the it's, it's one of the most amazing works of the 20th century. Um, 
None of the theories of evolution can be proved. They cannot. They don't have the proof. They assume links. They make inferences based on them. There's no proof at all. Um, resemblances don't mean a proof. Um, but the Darwinian theory is that we're all on this chain and the human being is just another more developed species of a kind of animal-like thing. When you look at Santiago's world, you, you, you can't miss his awareness that we're like the fish. Um, and he says numerous times, the animals are superior to us. They can do things we cannot. And he says of the fish, the only reason he caught that fish is because he tricked him. He even talks about the fish being better than he is. So his view of man is that man is not this creature, a, an, an image made in the image of man, this glorious thing that, and, and that was sanctified when Christ came into it. This, the man is one among these. Now, I, if we take away that, I don't think we're doing a service to Hemingway because I think that's what he had to struggle with. And I hope everybody sees that. It's one thing if you've got this image of yourself being noble, you can do noble things. But if you've, if you've been taught to think you're this horrible creature or you're depraved, it's much harder to come out of that. So anything you do accomplish is going to be greater. So we have to look at Santiago at the end, given the world he's in, okay? He says, um, he treats himself as a thing. I just hold on before you jump on this. He keeps talking to his hand like it's a thing apart. He even calls his left hand a traitor. He does not look at himself as a whole. He looks at himself as a composite of parts. That's Cartesian, that's modern. We're a machine. You can replace parts. Have a heart attack? Replace it. We can, make a, we can create a machine, a computer that's like us. That's Cartes absolutely Cartesian. The whole, for the Cartesian world, this, this is, goes to the heart of the beginning of the modern world and philosophically. For the Cartesian mind, the whole is the sum of the parts. So if you lose a part, it's injured or wounded, fix it. Repair it. Replace it. Okay? For Aristotle, Plato, and St. Thomas, or St. Augustine, the whole is prior to and greater than the sum of the parts. That is, before man's born, he already has a nature. He grows into it. If you read Aristotle's politics, you'll see that. He says there's a nature before. So the polis, hold on to this, the polis is prior to the individual. Because it represents his nature. There's something communal. We are, according to Aristotle, we're not isolated human beings. By nature, we're meant to be with other people. He says, man's a political animal. We're meant to learn from each other. So the understanding of the whole, according to the realist, Aristotle, Plato, St. Thomas, Saint, all those, is that the whole is greater than prior than the sum of the parts. For Descartes, it's the whole is the sum of the parts. So if there's a part that's missing, you replace it. The model is mechanistic. It's a machine. Something goes bad, find the thing and repair it, fix it, replace it. Okay. So I don't think it's accidental that he keeps talking to his hand. In one sense, that's an image of one aspect of the modern world that he's in. 
He keeps talking about the fish. He says, he's my brother. Three things are my brother, the fish in two hands. <laughs> but he says, fish, I love you and respect you, but I will kill you. He says in page 103 in my book, man is not made for defeat. Says to the fish at one point, because he's exhausted, if you're not tired, fish, you must be very strange. It's another way of saying the both of them fit each other because they're both strange. He's doing something other men haven't done. So is the fish. He's in a line with him. There's this contest of wills that goes to the heart of the modern world. Um, repeatedly he says that the animals are superior to the man, to humans. Um, and um, he says man, I think this is on page 68, he's thinking about Joe DiMaggio and his bone spur and he says he couldn't endure it like fighting cocks. Santiago or other ant. Man is no is not so much beside the great birds and beasts. They're better than he is. Um, his attitude towards the creatures are to kill them, or they will kill him. They do it because they can eat each other. Um, he says it wouldn't be good for them to kill for man to kill the moon or the sun because it's necessary for their existence. Now, hold on to that just for a second, if you all could. So, Hemingway is presenting a figure who's a product of his time. This isn't strange. In, in one sense, it really is representative of something in our modern world. Um, but he says to the fish and of the fish, you are my brother, I love you, but I will kill you. Set that next to St. Francis's saying, brother, son, sister, moon. What's the difference? What's the difference between those two worlds? What's happened? Um, on the way home, he admits that he's killed the animal. He even apologized. Um, and it's at that point that he, he, you know, the pain when he sees the sharks. It's exactly at that point that he says, feeling the, the nail go through his hands and into the wood, that he has a Christ-like illusion. few pages later he says, I'm sorry about it, fish. It makes everything wrong. What made it wrong for him is not killing the fish, goes to Bob's question, but that he went too far. Because by doing that it exposed the fish to the sharks and the sharks got him. And you know from all the passages that, that describe that ordeal that it's at that point that Sandio begins to feel defeated that he let the fish down. He said, if he'd, <laughs> goes to Marcy's question, he said, if I'd only brought an axe, I mean, to me it's sort of silly because they're going to be, the whole point is that we can never be adequately prepared. The modern world makes the assumption that, that um, if this is the enlightenment I, uh, idea, the modern world makes the assumption is um, problem solution, that reason can handle it, get religion out of the world. Reason can handle everything. So all we have to do is find the right reason and we can solve this problem. So the modern, the modern mind does not want to leave, live in mystery. It does not. It doesn't like it. When Santiago is going, um, I wasn't adequately prepared, he's sort of showing he buys into that. As if you can ever 
adequately prepared. There are going to be times in your life when something is going to hit us. Just when we think we've got all the answers, something will happen and make it clear. There's lots of things we don't see. Our faith is supposed to take us into a mystery. We're supposed to learn to get along there. Remember, we've been saying that from the beginning when we did the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and the Divine Comedy. I'm sorry about it, Fish. It makes everything wrong. And it's then when he asks himself, what did I do wrong? And he said, because he's lost it all, nothing, I went too far. Um, and it goes to Bob's, and he says, um, it was easy when you were beaten, he thought, well, here, let me go back. The wind is our friend anyway, another friend. There's the wind, the sun, the stars, all of it. Sometimes. And the great sea with our friends and our enemies. And bed, he thought, bed is my friend. Just bed, he thought, bed will be a great thing. It is easy when you're beaten, he thought. I never know how easy it was. What beat you, he thought. Nothing, he said aloud. I went out too far. Um, okay. So let me, let me try to sum this up, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something radical here, if you, if you will all hold on for a second. So the story is about an old man um, going out to sea to do what he's done his whole life. He says he was born to fish. It's exactly what Hemingway said about himself. He was born to be a writer. But some people are born to do some things. If he had stayed within the city, the story would have never happened. He would have just, in fact, he hasn't caught a fish in, what, 84 days. And everybody is critical of him because he's not doing what everybody else is doing. And then he goes out and has this extraordinary or um, experience where he catches a marlin that's beyond the size that anybody has ever seen. It's a little bit like the Nobel Prize. He's entered into something that people don't generally know anything about because they stay in their comfortable worlds. And he's ready to go back home with his great catch and then the sharks attack him. Something evil. There's a malice to what they do and they destroy it. So when he comes home, he, in one sense, he's defeated. So he doesn't come back with a trophy. He doesn't come back with a fish that will make him wealthy. And he does the, tries to do the calculations in his mind. So here, we're back in the Iliad in one sense. So he's reached a point where he realizes that what he's doing can't be answered by booty. That, that material things can never adequately repay you for who you are as a human. If the, your worth as a human being is measured purely in terms of your earning capacity, your wealth or your job or your health and your material possessions, then will you ever know who you are? So he, he went out to catch to do what he's always been doing, and, but he finds this fish taking him out into the ocean beyond where he's ever been before. And then he has this ordeal where he has to fight off all this pain to struggle to survive and to hold on to this fish. He finally defeats him and manages to get him alongside and then he goes in and you know that on the way in the sharks attack and he loses everything. He tries to beat them off and, and he does kill the sharks. He has that pride with the fish. He said, if we'd had this sword together, we would have done it. And he comes in and in one sense, his honor is enhanced 
because all the villagers know what happened, know what he faced. When the boy sees him, he weeps. He can't stop crying. He sees in the morning, he goes to get some coffee, he stops crying. When the, when the guy gives him coffee and asks how he is, he starts crying again. He's just broken up. And when the old man says they beat me, he said, um, he didn't. That is, he conquered the fish. So even if he doesn't have something to show for it, the question is, um, what does he have? I mean, how do we understand that moment, okay? Now, everybody hold on to that for a moment, because right now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, a radical turn, okay? Everybody okay? Hold. I mean, if anybody wants to add anything to that brief summary, go ahead. But I want to... I'm going to go, um, I'm taking a pretty sharp turn right here. Um, okay. This is a fish story. It's about a man going out to sea, but I've suggested, I think it's about something much deeper. I think it's really about what it is that makes a man a man. In Hemingway's mind, you can set it against Homer, Dante, I mean, go anywhere you want, because I think that's fair game, but it's, it's, it's Hemingway's view of what it means to be a man. You can go back into the village and stay within limits. You can be well prepared um, and stay safe. Um, he risked going out or being willing to be taken out to risk these mysteries, and it led to this story. Um, Hemingway's got in his mind all these other things. Um, he knows it's not just about a story, it's about something else. I think in a major way it's about a writer as well. It, it's, Frost had that, if you've read Robert Frost, you know that Frost has got the same thing. Hemingway knew that too. Faulkner knew it too. Faulkner and Hemingway are contemporaries. They are American writers, in a sense they are what I've been calling the prophets for each age. These are the two prophets of America, 20th century. Hemingway, Faulkner. We've already done Faulkner together, so, but I want to go back to a couple things in Faulkner where Faulkner is dealing with tutoring, where an older man is educating a boy. Now, here's my question before I read Faulkner. It's really clear that Santiago loves that boy. He misses him on the whole journey. He frequently says, I miss, if, if he were here, he could have watered the line. He could have prevented some of the wounding. And at the end, he says, I missed you. And at the very end, the boy's ready to go out. Now, Santiago has said that what he did wrong was go beyond limits, to go by and where he should have. How will he teach that boy what he's supposed to learn? Now that the boy has seen that carcass, an 18-foot carcass, are you all seeing where this is going? Does a young kid seeing that, whatever Santiago, if Santiago is saying, be sure you're prepared, don't go beyond limits. I have a, I mean, I just, it's a serious question for me. I will wait on it for you guys to answer, but it's, it's one of the serious questions for me. What is the boy learning? What will he do as a man? Will he have learned from Santiago if these are, if we're to look at them as mistakes? Are we supposed to look at them as mistakes? If you're in Hemingway's world, can you ever get beyond? I mean, I think I think this is one of the things he does in Old Man. In, in Hemingway's world, he, a man had to always prove himself. He always had to be perfect. He had to overcome everything. 
if you live that way as a man, what's it going to do to you as a man? What's it going to do to a marriage? This is the first time we've seen a, 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 a man in Hemingway world su survive an ordeal. And it's interesting that it's in this story we get this, we get, this man is tutoring a kid, that this kid is going to learn something from it. Okay? This is Faulkner, if you remember, when we did um, Ike, the Ike stories, in um, The Old People. Remember that Sam Fathers had been teaching young Ike to hunt in the wilderness. And then there's that one day when they're hunting, and I'm going to read some of these lines just to give you a feel for the differences because part of what's at issue here is poetry. It's not just a fact out there. We've been talking about poetry forever and what poetry does. This is not something to be reduced to a fact the way a scientist would. This is poetry. It's something different. We can't reduce Hemingway's story to a theme. That's what we do often, I mean, terribly, but it's poetry. The meaning is in the story, not in... I'm only talking about it to get us to that story. This is Faulkner in old, um, Go Down Moses, explicitly religious. Go Down Moses. Remember, the counterpart to that is um, Melville's Moby Dick and the Ishmael story. Sam Fathers, the Indian, has been teaching Ike to hunt. And it comes to this day when Ike will have his first chance to get a deer. Those of you who read the story will remember this. Then it had passed. Ike is shaking. It's the first time he's been able to join the hunters with a rifle. And he, he's a young man. He's a boy. He wants to kill his deer because that will prove he's initiated into manhood. Killing the deer will be the sign of it. It's a rite of initiation. So he's shaking. Then it passed. It was over. The solitude did not breathe again yet. It had merely stopped watching him and was looking somewhere else, even turning its back on him. But the solitude did not breathe again. It's like the God, it's like the forest, like the fish in San Diego. The forest and the hunter share an affinity. Um, Solid it did not breathe again. It should have suspired again, but then it did not. It was still facing, watching what it had been watching, and it was not here, not where he and Sam stood, rigid, not breathing himself, he thought, cried, no, no, knowing already that it was too late, thinking with the old despair of two and three years ago, I'll never get a shot. This is young boy. You can imagine a young boy, 11, 12, going out and being with the men, wanting to kill his first deer so he could take his place with the men desperately wanting to do this thing. I'll never get a shot. Then he heard it, the flat single clap of Walter Ewell's rifle, which never missed. Then the mellow sound of the horn came down the ridge and something went out of him. And he knew then he had never expected to get a shot at all. I reckon that's it, he said. He's whining. He's going to go away. Sam says, wait. Wait, the boy cried. And he would remember that, how he turned upon Sam in the truculence of a boy's grief over the missed opportunity, the missing buck. What for? Did you hear that horn? You can hear a child whining, you know, to his dad or his teacher. And he would remember how Sam was standing. Sam had not moved. He was not tall, squat rather, and broad, and the boy had been growing 
for the past year or so, and there was not much difference between them in height. He was looking over the boy's shoulder. Then the boy saw the buck. It was coming down the ridge as if it were walking out of the very sound of the horn which related its death. It was not running, it was walking, tremendous, unhurried, slanting and tilting its head to pass antlers through the undergrowth, and the boy standing with Sam beside him now, instead of behind him, as Sam always stood. He's taking in place alongside of Sam. He didn't get the shot, Ewell. And if you remember the story, remember Walter Ewell, who never missed. He just It's that epic phrase. He just He's among the men. He never misses. Walking tremendous, unhurried, slanting and tilting its head to pass the antlers through the undergrowth. And the boy standing with Sam beside him now, instead of behind him, as Sam always stood, and the gun still partly aimed, and one of the hammers still cocked. Then it saw them. So the deer, who's coming out of the sound, sees them. Now, if you remember this, you know that this is not the deer because Samuel killed it. This is the spirit of the deer passing through the brush. It did not even alter its course, not fleeing, not even running, just moving with that winged and effortless ease with which deer move, passing within 20 feet of them, its head high and the eye not proud, not haughty, but just full and wild and unafraid. And Sam standing beside the boy now, his right arm raised at full length, just like an Indian. Palm outward, speaking in that tongue which the boy had learned from listening to him and Joe Baker in the blacksmith shop, while up in Ridge, Walter Ewell's horn was still blowing them into the dead buck. And then Sam goes, Ole chief, Sam said, grandfather. He's acknowledging the spirit of the deer. And, and you know from that moment, they, they go to where the hunters are. Walter Ewell's back is to them because they're all looking at this deer. And this is what ends. It's one of those, mar this is a mar marvelous moment. When they reached him, he still did not look up, standing above a little spike buck, which had still been a fawn last spring. He was so little, I pretty near let him go, Walter said. But just look at the track he was making. It's pretty near big as a cow's. If there were any more tracks here beside the ones he's laying in, I would have sweared there was another buck here that I never even saw. <laughs> These white hunters, and I mean, what do I say about them? But Okay, everybody's got that, right? You remember that from the old people. If you don't, go back because it's an extraordinary story. Ike's, Sam's been teaching Ike the ways of the forest. This was his first chance, and Walter Ewell gets in ahead of it, but he learned something from Sam. Remember? And he learned to see the spirit of the buck. Walter Ewell, the hunters? Not a clue. What they see is this buck and a trophy. And the irony is they see these big tracks like there's another buck there. Anyway, Faulkner's handling of that is amazing. But the one I wanted to go to is this one. And I'm trying to be brief here because we're... Um, in the bear, remember that the opening sections of the bear follow Ike as he's growing from a 9-year-old, 11, 12, 16. Then he, he goes back to that age when he's, if I remember correctly, he's 11. And he can join them in. Ike has, or Sam has taught him how to hunt. He has respect for old Ben, and if you remember old Ben, old Ben was described as this um, anachronism, this thing larger than life, and the men come into the woods wanting to kill him and never expecting to. It's like he's a larger than life. He represents this 
wilderness and you know all the trucking companies are coming the wilderness is being destroyed and that way of life is being lost so in one sense in the same way that Santiago is going beyond Ike is being introduced to a way of life that's losing but he's entered into something the other men don't know is that clear this way of the force is being lost it's like the ap apophatic it's there and not there so he's learning to see something the other people aren't. Remember we've talked about the Eucharist? You take the Eucharist and you walk out to the parking lot, where are you? Sam Fathers has taught this boy to have a, a way of standing in nature the, white, the, the adult men don't have. He's 11 and he's tracking old Ben and he goes out one day and um, he, more than anything he wants to see this bear. Um, and if you remember the boy begins to track him and he keeps failing and, it, and they all reach a point where Sam finally says you don't have the right dog and if you remember they had to get um, Boone who was this lion and or not Boone, lion they called him and Boone Hagenbeck loved him and actually began sleeping with him and the boss um, got furious because Boone never took a shower, if you remember, and he would sneak up the, the dog. So if they went hunting, the dog would give the scent away and they'd lose. So it's just a wonderful treatment of, the, of a community. Oh, Bob, is, that, is his name Lion? Um, here's the passage I wanted to go to. The boy's been hunting Boone daily. He gets up at early before dawn, goes into the forest, or, or sorry, Ike, and begins hunting and doing what Sam had taught him to do, to crisscross his paths and identify things. He comes back disappointed again. He's a young boy, and Sam says to him, it's the gun. So he sets out the next day. He leaves the gun behind. He's a hunter. He's trying to follow in the footsteps of these men. He's a hunter. He leaves the gun behind. He starts tracking and then he realizes it's not just the gun. He has to put down his compass and he has to put down his watch. So he gives up all technology. Now think about the difference between Santiago reaching a point where he says, I should have been better prepared. I should have all this stuff. What's going on here is like Ike has to relinquish everything. He has to give up everything. He left the next morning before light without breaking, without breakfast, long before Ashwood. He had only the compass and a stick for snakes. He'd go almost a mile before he'd need to see the compass. He sat on a log, the invisible compass in his hand, while the secret night sounds, which had ceased at his movements, screwed again and then fell for good. He went fast still, quietly becoming steadier, better and better, a woodsman without yet having time to realize it. He jumped a doe and fawn? That's how good he is. He's a kid. You know how sensitive animals are. He had left the gun by his own will and relinquished. He had accepted not a gambit, but a choice um, and a condition in which not only the bears heretofore inviolable anonymity, but all the ancient rules and balances of hunter and hunted had been abrogated. He would not even be afraid, not even in the moment when the fear would take him completely. Be scared, he said. You can't help it but don't be afraid. Um, he puts the compass and the watch down and he begins to do more closely what, Tan, what Sam had taught him. 
Um, he stopped for the first time since he'd risen from the log when he could see the compass face at last. He actually ended up back where he left them. And looked about, mopping his sweating face on his sleeve. He had already relinquished of his will because of his need. In humility and peace and without regret, yet apparently that had not been enough. The leaving of the gun was not enough. He stood for a moment, a child alien and lost, in the green and soaring gloom of the markless wilderness. Then he relinquished completely to it. It was the watch and the compass. He was still tainted. He removed the linked chain of the one and the loop throng of the other from the overalls and hung them on a bush. Continues the track and then he comes back to that point and suddenly this is what happens. Even as he looked up he saw the next one, track after track. Water filling the track up as if he's just come on Old Ben. So, so suddenly the water is seeping into the tracks that Old Ben is leaving. Moving, not hurrying, running, but merely keeping pace with them, the tracks as they appeared before him as though they were being shaped out of thin air. Just one constant pace short of where he would lose them forever and be lost forever himself. That is, when he's on the verge of a mystery in which he will lose contact with everything in the world. He's going beyond. Um... Um, he would be lost forever himself, tireless, eager, without doubt or dread, panting a little above the strong rapid, little hammer of his heart emerging suddenly into a little glade, and the wilderness coalesced. It rushed soundless and solidified the tree, the, the bush, the compass, and the watch, glinting where a ray of sunlight touched them. Then he saw the bear. It did not emerge, appear. It was just there, immobile, fixed, in the green and windless noon's hot dappling, not as big as he had dreamed it, but as big as he had expected. Bigger, dimensionless against the dappled obscurity looking at him. Then it moved. It crossed the glade without haste, walking for an instant into the sun's full glare and out of it. Stopped again and looked back at him across the shoulder. Then it was gone. It didn't walk into the woods. It faded, sank back into the wilderness without motion as he had watched a fish. A huge old bass sank back into the dark depths of its pool and vanish without even any movement of its fins. Okay, I don't want to concentrate on Faulkner right now, but I'd like a contrast because I think it'll help something. How do we understand um, Santiago as he changed from who he was at the beginning? If so, how? Um, why did Faulkner say of Hemingway that he discovered God in this story? That's the first question. And then the second, I mean, I'd like to get to is, how is what goes on between Sam and Ike different from what goes on between Santiago and the boy? But let's take the first one. How do, we, how do you guys look at Santiago at the end of this story? Is he the same man? Um, what has he learned? Um, is, is, the, is the male figure here? Does he represent something different from what we saw in Hills Like White Elephant? I know that's not a lot to go on. We haven't read his novels, but is he different from the the figures we see in Hills Like White Elephant or Clean Well Lighted Place or Macomber? How do we understand Santiago? What's he learned? Has he learned anything? Why did Faulkner say that? I mean, that, he, um, that Hemingway discovered God? Anybody? And what does this have to do? Fishing? 
if, um, if this is about ordinary life, the way we live our er everyday lives at home, you know, in our marriages with our kids, what do we learn from this old man in the sea story? I'm still at the beginning, but go ahead. Who was that? Go ahead, Joe. Sounded like a big echo. Um, the I'm still at the beginning, but I'm noticing um, you got a fisherman, you know, and Christ is the fisher of men, and he was the one who told him, you know, how to get more fish by setting your nets on the other side of the boat. Um, and so that was the first thing I thought of, um, was just a likeness of the fishing imagery. If you're trying, if you're trying to catch a fish, you need to know how to do it. And then the, uh, he was always hungry and I couldn't figure out if he was unmotivated to eat and hydrate and sleep. Um, because of he was sadness or had had some kind of loss that just left him completely without any kind of desire for food and um, water and sleep, or if he was trying to prove that he could, that if he was, or if he was so poor he couldn't afford any of that, or if he was trying to prove he could do it without any of those things. So I'm, I'm still at that point in the story where I'm um, trying to appreciate the poetry, but mostly being a nag, like, why don't you eat? You can't go out and do all these difficult physical things without this type of protein and these carbohydrates and this, you know, um, this much water. You got to take a lot of water. And and so this is me just going, Santiago, you know. Um, and th so I'm, and Christ went through a lot of uh, the period where he was fasting. And so I was, um, I was thinking about that, how going without food uh, what does that do to you in a, in a heightened spiritual experience? Um, so I was I was trying to think of all those things that Christ that happened to Christ that's covered in the Gospels and also that yeah, Santiago seems to be in. Just looking the names. That's all. Um, I, I I'm a little bit guarded about going to, you know, be fishers of men because it I. I that to me is a little bit of a stretch here, but the, but the the eating thing I think goes back to the the point that I thought Bob and Marcy were getting to Jolie that um, that he's a he's a veteran fisher, vet, veteran fisherman. He he knows what he's doing, but I think part of the point of the story is that what's happened to him is that his experience is taking him beyond where he's ordinarily been before. So my, my, my analogies at that point would be to leave the comfortable world that we're talking about, the, the alternative, you know, prepare, solve everything, everything's settled, there's no mystery. Um, because in, I want to be careful here because I, 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 I'm not pushing us into sainthood or, I, you know, but, but to, try to, to try to offer at least a response to your question. So to me it's not any of those things, it's it's partly the effect of what happens when you go out beyond your limits and then you have to face hard things, real hardships. And all of us know that in our lives because there's times when it, and it, 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 it may not just be in terms of eating, but eating can be, you know, if we go through a trial in our life, um, lots of us are not going to eat the way we ordinarily do. The pain is too great. If you look at the lives of the saints, the, the problem with the modern world is that we measure everything by comfort and you know security and meals on a table. 
the saints all entered an area where they fasted and starved and ben, you know Benedict was out in the desert eating locusts and John the Baptist we, we look at that in disbelief I look at it and think we've got to recover me personally we've got to recover some of that because we're just too you know we want to make we want to be comfortable and settled and I think the story is partly about going beyond that so the interesting thing in in that context that you're talking about is he's aware of how much water he has he tries to be sparing the way he drinks it and he makes a point I mean to, uh, this is what's interesting he makes a point of eating I mean in response to, I mean deliberately he forces himself he, he cuts up the dolphin he, he eats the fish inside the dolphin at the end he sprinkles the the fish that he gets you know through the weeds he does everything he can but the purpose of it is to stay strong for this fight um, so I just think it's important to always hold on to the fact that how however we read this we've got to see it as his going beyond ordinary conventions and it's at that point that I think what Hemingway is doing is helping us to see so often in the world that we create for ourselves there's something we're not seeing and we won't see it unless we step into that. It's like stepping outside of the cave for Socrates, or Christ on the cross, or the or the or the martyrs, or um, that when you um, when you stay in your comfortable world, there's there's some things we miss as human beings. We don't see, we don't feel. So part of what's at issue here is something that happens out there that takes him beyond this, you know, world of the that's the world that we know by our ordinary social conventions. Nikki, you look so pensive. What's your response? How do we look at Santiago at the end? And I, I want to get Debbie in here. Debbie, I don't know where, but Nikki, where are you? How do you, has he changed? What's changed? What has he learned? If so, what is it? Is he the same well, man? I, I feel like a lot of what drove him was pride and that you know, the end really taught him some humility. Flesh it out, Ken. I, I agree. Can you make sense of it in terms of the story, can you? Well... On what, on what he, basis do you say that? What's going on that makes you say that? Well, you know, he, he hooked that big fish. He knew, even without seeing it, that it was big. It was dragging him out to sea. And he knew that he was ill-prepared. He didn't have all the things he needed, but he wanted that big fish. And, um, you know, it wasn't until, you know, he said he killed it. He won. He beat the fish. But, you know, he wasn't prepared for the rest of the right. fight because the sharks beat him. Nikki, do me a favor. I mean, I, 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 I think everybody's shaking. I mean, most of us, would, I think, agree because you touched on a central point. Relate that to ordinary life, if you can. Can you? Well, I think that, you know, we all need a little bit of humility in our lives. A little bit. Some of us need more than a little bit, but... Yeah. You know, I think that it's important to think, to realize that, you know, we, we can't do everything on our own. You know, we need... The help of our family, our community. We need Christ to guide us. You know, I think that 
I think that, uh, you know, we, we just are served well with some humility. Let me come in this at, at another, with another way. Up to this point in Hemingway's life, so many of the men characters in his novels or stories um, sort of exemplify this Hemingway male image, strong, competent, defeatable, come out ahead in a boxing, wrestling match, always win. Um, you've always got to prove yourself. You've got to have skill, like San Diego. You've got to show that you're capable of the moment. So the Hemingway phrase was a, what he called a moment of grace. I don't think he meant by that what the church meant, but he means that you call on something in a moment that helps you handle this. And in Hemingway's world, men either come to that point and die, they get killed off, or they get disillusioned. Because whatever perfection they were aiming at, um, um, they, they may get to for a moment and often don't. But it's not uncommon for the Hemingway moment to come to that moment where he's got to prove himself again, he's got to show how good he is, and I, I, I sort of asked this question to me, what's wrong with that? What's the danger of that? Because here in Santiago, for, for the first time in, in Hemingway's work, you got a man who does this extraordinary thing, but he can't show it. There's no trophy, there's no crowd saying, you know, I mean, they do see the fish, but he comes out feeling he was defeated, he lost. And you're using, I mean, you're, you put it in terms of pride and humility. And it's interesting to me be, because in fact, let me just put it in. What's the difference between a human being, a man, who has to go through life feeling he's always got to prove he can do, he's right, he's got all the answers. There are women like that, so we're not just talking about men. But you've got all the answers. You've got, you've got this controlled world. You figure it out. You've got all the answers. What's the danger with that for that person and for anybody that, who that person's related to? Well, you never learn anything because you think you know everything you I think you alienate yourself from people from your community anybody else jump in here with the ordeal his hands are cut he's having to do all these things there's this great ordeal taking place he's suffering enormously through the whole thing I think, well, I think there's a, a a, a difference in a sense that what Hemingway is, is bringing out here is how well you deal with the crisis. I mean, Santiago stepped out of his comfort zone. He went out too far and he, you know, encountered what one might expect when one goes out somewhere where no one's been before. A lot of challenges, a lot of difficulties. Yeah. And it's how you handle those. It's not so much whether you win or lose in the end. And I think Mandolin kind of brought that out to San Diego at the end. It's how you dealt with the crisis when it was upon you. And uh, we, we go through in, in, in great detail how Santiago deals with everything that comes along when, he, when his hands are cut and how he, how he deals with that so he can continue to pull into the fish. He, he eats only when he has to, and he knows he needs to in order to, to keep up his strength so mm -hmm. he can continue to, to persevere. So to me, this is 
maybe uh, Hemingway seeing things a little differently than what he did most of his life in a sense that it was a lot about winning, about, you know, always being the guy that comes out on top in the arm wrestling. And in this case, it's more about how you dealt with those incredible circumstances. Fred, how does he change? How does San Diego change? Do you see him changed at the end? I, well, I, I see a lot of Ishmael in Santiago at the end, um, where Ishmael began to come in touch with a lot of other things in nature and found beauty everywhere. Santiago went through, you know, with the, with the marlin, with the uh, flying fish, with the, the bird that he knew was ultimately going to encounter the hawk. I mean, he started identifying with so many different things in nature. He saw, he saw beauty in so many things that, you know, you, you know, were, were probably different than what he had dealt with before. So I guess I saw a little, a lot of Ishmael coming out in Santiago at the end. Instead of making it a figure, can you describe the difference between Santiago at the beginning and Santiago at the end? Uh, Santiago at the beginning was very much focused on, uh, the defeat that he'd been encountering. He was like 84 days before he'd caught a fish and all of the, the harassing he was getting from all of the different villagers. The fact that, uh, Mandolin's father made him go with a luckier fish. Um, he was, he was caught up in you know, luckier fisherman. He was caught up in all of those connections to the world and when he toward the the end of the, the adventure with the marlin he began to connect with a lot of different things that weren't so much um the everyday kind of activities that, that tend to drag us down debbie do you have i i'm hearing your response last week and it's been on my mind all week you you read this story and um and I know you liked it. You, you're reading again. I mean, it's been a long time. When you look at well, here. In fact, let me let me pick up Fred's question, but put it to you. Santiago goes into this ordeal. I mean, it's the way he approaches life, um, identifying with things in nature. He 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 hates the uh, what's that jellyfish? The the uh, the the Portuguese, Portuguese man of war. Yeah, the man Portuguese man of war. It's a it's a, because it looks so innocent on the surface and. Um, it, it just is fatal, or can be fatal underneath. But anyway, he he. That's just leave it, Doc. Okay? Um, it's it's okay. Um, he he talks about all of the things in nature as if they're his brother. I don't hear him use the word sister, but he makes clear that he he that he sees that all things in nature are predatory by nature. I mean, everybody feeds on everybody else. It's a uh, it's the way things are, and and a human happens to be there on that same chain. Um, but he, so he says, you're my brother, and he feels a regret at the end, he's almost like he let him down. It, is, um, what's your response to Santiago at the end? Early on, he makes a point of saying, you're my brother, but I'm going to kill you. He's going to go out and fish again with the little boy. They're going to go out. In two weeks when his hands heal, he's going to be out fishing again. Um, is he, the, will he be the same fish? The fisherman has he changed? Is something has something happened in this ordeal to change the way he fishes? What's what's your thought on that? My, my thought is that he is, he has been um, 
converted really from someone who has a lot of avarice that is is looking only for, uh, almost avarice. avarice. What 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 is that? He's almost looking for what this is going to give me. Where and and but without any regard for the creature itself. It's just just what do I get? And um, I think I think about um, and I can't remember where I saw this analogy, but. I think about, say, Native Americans who would go out and would hunt buffalo. And um, one of the things that they do is they bless that creature once they kill it. They know that they have to kill it to survive. And that's what he is going to do, in my opinion, what he is, is coming to is that, okay, this is going to help him survive, but that he's going to honor that creature and what that creature is going to be able to give give him, so that that it's, um, I, I think his attitude is going to be completely different. Uh, one is very selfish, and the other one is recognizing the gift that this creature is giving to him. Hmm. Jeannie, where are you on all this? Do you have a thought? I don't believe that. I do not believe that at all. Any, any, um... Yeah, this is Linda. I have a thought. Go ahead, Linda, go ahead. I just think that he did change at the end, and the next time he goes out fishing, he's going to be more prepared. <laughs> I think he learned his lesson, and that he will be more prepared, and that deep inside himself, he's going to have a a sense of accomplishment and raise his self-esteem and he'll be he he now knows i can i can not only i think i can i know i can and i did it and i think that's a sense of a accomplishment uh before he leaves this earth linda let me ask this before you because i, I want to get to the ike comparison for a minute if i can uh, but i want to i want to pick up your it seems to me part of the story is um, that when a human being goes beyond boundaries, he enters a mystery, a realm of mystery, beyond. It's the conventional world. You know that we've been dealing with that from the beginning. We can live in a conventional world in which everything's prepared. We've got everything is planned. We don't have control over everything. We can be a control freak. We can think if we've got everything in control, we're going to be, you know, fine. I think all of us know people like that. I mean, there may be something to that in all of us here. I don't know, but... I think we all know there's a danger in that, that um, at least according to our faith, I mean, that's what's bringing us together here. Christ has invited us into a mystery. The sacraments are a mystery. We're asked to step into a mystery. It's interesting, I'm going back to, um, to um, um, Nikki's comment that um, Catholics are asked to live in a mystery all the time. If we ever get to a point where we think we've got all the answers to things and all that we have to do to prepare, then it's a serious question whether we're really living in a mystery because Christ is saying, there's a lot you don't know, there's a lot I'm doing. So it seems to me one of the things going on in this story is that Hemingway's taking us out into a mystery and we're learning the cost of it. And it seems to me one of the things that he's learning is it, no amount of preparation is going to help him deal with this because it wasn't a matter of preparation he's learned to be humble i think 
Debbie touched on Nikki. Nikki touched on it. He's been defeated, and it and having now. I mean, what's interesting to me: all the Hemingway heroes die, or they turn into alcoholics, or they kill themselves. Santiago, wait, 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 wait. Santiago survives it, and he's going to go out with a kid. So the question that I'm really asking is, how's he different? What's he going to do differently in his life? Is he going to avoid mysteries? Um, uh oh, something. I don't, somebody just let their. Somebody, help me out. Somebody knows this. When you put your own app there, it replaces everybody else. If whoever did what they're doing, I'm not even sure what happened here, but. Yeah, I see this big screen that says downloading some app. Yeah. Yeah. Who's doing that? Is that somebody? I don't know. Mm. If somebody's doing that, could you check it off? Or I don't know who, what's going on here. But here's my question, because we've only got a couple of minutes. Um, um, compare the relationship between Santiago and the boy with... Um, with um, Sam Fathers, and I don't. Who's doing this? Can it? What is going on? I don't know. We haven't seen any porn sites yet. That's a good thing. <laughs> Looks oh. like full '80s video games. Who's? Yeah. Who, uh, I don't know. Susan and Debbie are coming in and out. I don't I know. See oh, I, I just have a whole bunch of strange stuff going on. Yeah. So do I. Yeah. yeah. Make international calls. God, what yeah. the hell? Um, no, I don't. I see two, four, six people. No, I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing a whole bunch of other screens. Yeah, I'm stuff. seeing a screen. It's a, it's a win. Anyway, can, can we ignore that for a minute? Can, can anybody, what, since we have audio, what's the, is there a difference between what goes on between Sam Fathers and Ike? Okay. And what's going on between... I've had an idea and I haven't said anything yet. Good. But my idea was that Santiago thought he knew what the battle was. It was to get the fish. And he wasn't getting it, and he needed to get it, and he had that success in the, in the past. And that's what he thought the fight was. Get out of this. And what he learned was that's not the fight. You, you did that. You succeeded. But that's not succeeding at life. So we define our lives by what we want to do. Now I think he will be a different tutor to the boy because he has learned how to think about what the real battle is. That's and, the best I can do. No, no, no. I'm not going to let you off there. So. The real battle, can you can you find words to describe it, Sue? The real battle is what? The real battle is much Is bigger. somebody doing something? If one of you on, on site is doing, if you could, one of, it's, I, one of you is doing something. So I don't know who it is, but. It's, it's got to be, it's got to be your, your partner in crime, Mike, because none of the rest of us can control the board like that. No. Only the host. And the co-host can do what's going on yeah, right now. Mike is not on this right now, but should it, I chat him? I'll, I'll no, send him no. a note on chat see if he sees it. Can you guy go ahead? Can you pick up my question? What's the difference between uh, what goes on between Sam Fathers and and um, Ike and Santiago and the boy? 
Two I minutes. Don't, I don't remember enough detail mm -hmm. about Sam Fa Feathers to, or Fathers to to um, something's happened here. Make that comparison, but I think that Santiago is changed, even though he doesn't seem like it when he comes back. He has learned things, as we have to learn what's important, what's, what is the real battle. We, we live our lives wanting things, working toward things, getting what we want or not, but, but, but we're, in a, we're in so often a, a fight, a battle, that isn't the right fight, yeah. that we're not doing things for the right reasons in the right, right way. Sure. I, I think Sam Fathers is wise and leads his, he, he knows already what Santiago has yet to learn, that he, he learned, <laughs> presumably, through this experience, that the fight he thought that was important, that was the critical thing, and not right men both men were teaching young boys right there's an unknown user here can i i don't know who can can the uu identify i don't know who that is i'm not even sure that that's an issue here but let me stop here because um we're fighting a confusion i'm sorry i wish i knew what to do i don't know what to do um I think that happened a week ago. Somebody was trying to share something and pressed a sharing button, and, it, and what it did was eliminate everybody and put everybody in the bottom of the screen and br bring up all these other things. Anyway, well, there's a there's a, a thing on my on my thing that says request control, whoever wherever that came from, and then there's a a button over here that looks like it looks like somebody wants to to show a conversation or send a text. There's a it's another iconic thing, so I, you know. I don't know. I, I, I press, we may be being hacked by somebody. I, yeah. I don't know. I, have, I don't know. Let me press request control. On. I, already, okay, I, I already did. Let's stop, you guys, because we're at the end anyway. Let me just leave you guys with a couple of questions. Um, one of the amazing things about um, Old Man of the Sea is that um, Santiago brings a sort of um, veteran, conventional way of fishing into what he does. Um, it's it's wonderful because he's got a, a sort of peasant country village sort of mentality, talks with himself, swears to himself. It's a very simple mind. But some of the questions he's dealing with are pretty profound. He, he's questioning himself at the end and wondering whether he believes in sin, whether he what he's done. Don't forget the world we're in. This is the modern world. It's the beginning of the modern world. There's all these determinisms. People think they got all the answers to everything in the sciences, that if they do X, Y will happen. And Hemingway is calling that all into question. He's showing that it's only when we go beyond that we really learn who we are, um, about our limits and deeper things. The wonderful thing about this story, it seems to me, is he survives it. He's crushed. And as so many of you said, he's, he's learned to see that the things that he's been doing before, successful, smart, I mean, he's precise, he does everything the right way, he knows what he's doing, but he's, 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 he's learned that just simply catching it isn't everything because he comes back defeated. And he comes back while he says, 
Man was not meant to be defeated. He said, this is on page 103, and man is not made for defeat. So there's a way in which I think for the first time in so many of the stories we've seen, um, we've got a man going to a cross. He suffered defeat. He was humiliated. He lost. He didn't come out on top. He didn't beat sharks. They beat, you know, they took away his fish. But um, he came out of it. I think Nikki said it. I mean, all, so many of you have said it. Sue and each of you in your own ways, Debbie. He's not the same man. Um, he's, oh, we're back. He's not the, did somebody do something? Yeah, I pressed something here, looking for something that said desk, desk, desktop, and I, I clicked on that, and that's so, what happened. So you were the problem all along, Robert. Yeah, well, I probably, well, I don't know why, but that, that would be, that would be normal for me. <laughs> anyway, I, I think it's an extraordinary story. It, particularly if you think about the times, the culture, the beliefs, the worldview that were, that had really shaped everybody's mind, that, that are in so many ways so inhuman, so inhuman. Um, so um, think about that. I, I hope you will go back and read the, the uh, Faulkner stories because there's a wonder, there's, I think there's a, a, a big, important difference between what Faulkner's doing in that relationship between Sam and Ike and what um, San Diego's doing with the boy. But, um, but still, there's stories about um, young boys entering our culture, learning to see things differently from the way most people see it. Because if you look at the scientific cultures, everybody's got answer. They think they know. There are all these determinisms. Um, if, if we're going to do this, all we have to do is do this there's a problem, here's a solution. What's going on here is um, they've entered a mystery, he's gone beyond, he's learned from doing that, and Ike is doing the same thing. And remember, because this to me is one of the fundamental differences, why I asked the question, when, when San Diego goes out to, to fish again, will he say, you're my brother, but I will kill you? Put Ike and Sam together, Ike, Ike doesn't get that shot off. But he learns to see the spirit of the deer. And when he finally does track the bear, he does it without the gun, the compass, and the watch. And in that moment, it's no longer, it's, this is so important, it's no longer, we, this is not Hemingway's world. It's no longer a hunted and a hunter. It's no longer a predator and a prey. Ike and the bear behold each other. There's a beholding. It's almost like They've, they've gotten close to returning to Eden. The hunting, the hunter, the selfishness, the pride. I gave it all. Remember, remember when I gave up the things, he said, you know, and he's not afraid, and um, he gave himself to the, it's like give, relinquishing yourself, giving yourself up, and when you give yourself up in that moment, that's what Christ asked of everybody. Stop acting like you've got all the answers, um, like you've got to control everything, I gives that up, and he's the only one who sees that bear. And in that moment, they behold each other. That's as close to an Edenic moment that I know of modern literature. And it's about a teacher and a boy. So hold on to those things. You've got Faulkner dealing with a the hunt, and Hemingway in his very last, um, I think his greatest story, dealing with a hunt and showing us our world. So that's our world. Um, 
it would, I'd, you know, give some serious thought to going back and reading, go down Moses and those two stories, the, the old people and uh, the bear. Next week we do Melville. Um, if you're all up to it, you guys want to meet another week, <laughs> deal with this technical stuff. Melville's Billy Bud. It's one of the best stories on the problem between law and mercy that I know of. And this is after he wrote Moby Dick. So this is an older man looking at something deeply Christian. The ending of it is going to be explicitly Christian. It's one of the few works that I know of that deals with the theme explicitly Christian. Um, and we'll see what you guys think about it. Um, um, see you guys next week. You all stay safe. Um, it's good to see you all. Genuinely good to see you. I wish we could be present in our bodies more than I can tell you. But, um, Thanks, Bob. Thank you all. Bye. 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 Good night. Bye. I have no idea what that was all about. Oh, good. Blessed to call him friend. Herschel Walker, who was one of the great football players, did you see this? Says, it hurts my soul to hear longtime pal Trump smeared as racist. That's coming from a black guy. This is so good. We are facing an awful... Well, I don't know what happened. I don't know what that was. Oh, God, 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 God. Oops. Did you read this? Um, probably, Doc. I don't, I don't even know right now. I mean, I don't need it now because...